This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. 50267 dollars That is the average starting salary for Praxis graduates. Their average age, 21. Most of them do not have a college degree. Many of them came straight out of high school. All of them wanted more than classrooms and studying and fretting over GPAs and graduating and shooting out resumes, hoping one landed somewhere that they didn't absolutely hate. They chose Praxis to get into the real world and work with amazing, fast-growing startups and small businesses right now. Why wait? To learn by doing, to reflect and study and push yourself and have coaching and, and mentoring to improve on what you're doing and then to go back to doing it again, that back and forth process of real world engagement in a business setting and reflecting on it, self-guided curriculum. That's what Praxis is all about. In less than one year, graduating the program, starting at an average of $50,267. That's after a paid apprenticeship during the program. See, you get paid to apprentice while you're in the program with these businesses. And when you're done, you get hired on. That is a deal that no other institution can match. You, you can't get that kind of exposure and that kind of net cost of zero experience that leads you to a fulfilling life and career that quickly anywhere else. Go to discoverpraxis.com and join. All right, Isaac Morehouse, welcome to the show, man. I'm glad to talk to you today. Hey, likewise, Kevin. I, I got to say, um, I'm honored to be on here. When I had you on my podcast, my wife said to me just recently, she's, she said, well, she's way behind on catching up to all the episodes. And she said, hey, I just listened to my favorite episode of your podcast yet. And I said, which one? She said, it was with Kevin Geary. He was amazing. He's he my favorite guest. So there you go. Oh, I'm blushing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to do it again. That, that means we need a round two, right? That's right. Absolutely. All right. So um, I brought you on because I'm, I'm looking at the state of the economy, first of all, just the economic landscape, as well as education. I'm asked all the time about alternative education and what I think about the public school system, what I think about the way school is kind of structured in general. You know, even if it's not public, if it's private, it still mimics the public school like model. Um, so I wanted to have you on because I know that you are an expert in entrepreneurship and leading people to that point and guiding them once they've decided, Hey, yeah, I want to do this kind of stuff. You know, you are a great guide for that. Uh, but I wanted to also pick your brain on education and, you know, what needs to be done. I know this, this is a very like general <laughs> and broad question, but like, what are the failure points and, and what changes and adjustments can be made and really what parents 
should be thinking about as we head into an economy that is rapidly changing and they're thinking about preparing their children. And that's why they send them to school, right? I'm sending my kid to school because I want them to be prepared. But the fact is, and I think you're going to agree with me, that the school model that we have right now is not really preparing anybody for anything. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. And that's that's really where the intersection of my interests and kind of my whole life career path is, is between it's that intersection of kind of education and entrepreneurship. Um, so that's, that's really what I'm all about. And, and before we jump into it, I want to define how I want to use entrepreneurship because, yes, because there's a that. lot of, yeah, it, I mean, it's become a really popular word. It's very uh, trendy and exciting. And I get there's sort of two arguments, two sides. Well, yeah, because the old school, the old school kind of thinking is, oh, I don't want my kid to be an entrepreneur. Like that's a that's a that sounds like a lifetime of risk and failure, right? right. I want and them to avoid that. Yeah, an entrepreneur was like you know a, maybe like a small business owner or someone who was constantly struggling and they're up all night you know doing their own books and trying to sell widgets or whatever it might be. <laughs> um, and then to other people, entrepreneur is you know, a, a tech founder, some, you know, 19 year old kid who built an app and then Facebook bought it for a billion dollars. Um, and then other people still are using it to basically cover everything. So you'll see somebody on LinkedIn whose profile, you know, they, they haven't, they don't have no work experience and they haven't started a company, but they describe themselves as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, it's like an artist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So here's how I am going to use the word. I feel like it's too far gone to use it just to describe someone who owns a business. And I don't even think that person always is an entrepreneur by necessity either. So a business owner, that's not what I'm going to use the term as, and I'm not even going to use it as a, a business founder, someone who creates a new business. Those people have to behave entrepreneurially uh, in many ways, but I'm using it more broadly than that. So I'm using it kind of the way an economist would to describe a category of action to describe a type of activity. So an entrepreneurial activity or act is to solve a problem, in a, an existing problem, in a new way that hasn't happened before. And often that new way doesn't involve, it, it may, but it doesn't always involve new invention. So it can be taking existing technologies, existing tools, and combining them in a way that hasn't been done before. And now you have, you know, you've sort of acted entrepreneurially. And the example I like to give to demonstrate that entrepreneurial action is is really uh, native to human beings. It's built into us from the time we're born. In fact, this is the, the method by which we learn most things. Take a small child who's just at that stage where they're kind of, you know, walking a little bit. They're standing up next to everything. And there's something on a shelf that's too high for them to reach. They can't reach it. Now, they've seen people use steps before and walk up the steps, and they've seen their little you know, toy box be used as a toy box. And all of a sudden, they have this, this idea, this moment of sort of alertness or inspiration, and they say, toy box is kind of similar to a step, and they drag it over, and they step on the toy box, and they reach the ball. Now, they've never seen anyone else step on a toy box and use it as a step, but they make that connection between two different objects and they use one in a way it hasn't been used before to solve a problem. I think that is sort of the most fundamental way to think about entrepreneurial action. So that's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about being more entrepreneurial. And that, and that may mean you end up starting businesses or creating new products. 
Um, it may mean you're just looking at innovative ways to do things and creatively solve problems within an existing enterprise or your daily life. Yeah. So in that way, and of course, tying that into economics, it's very often economically valuable to find ways to solve problems in that manner, right? In a unique way. Yes. Therefore, you can create companies out of this and often do great things for society. And, you know, it's, it's a great cycle. And so by what you're really saying is we're all born entrepreneurs in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's to varying degrees and people have different um, levels of, you know, sort of uh, what that alertness to those opportunities, seeing those gaps. Oh, look, I see that everyone's out there picking up their dog's poo and none of them like it. I have time and I'm not disgusted by it. What if I offer to do it for them and sell them? You're sort of making these connections, seeing these opportunities. People have it to varying degrees in different ways. And people also have hugely different degrees of risk tolerance. So it doesn't mean everyone can or should try to start their own business. Psychologically, mm -hmm. it might be like way too much for some people because it's stressful. But it, it does mean that that is an innate ability that I think you can't really teach entrepreneurship, but what you can do is prevent it from being crushed. And this, the education system as it stands, it's almost, I don't want to sound like, like it's some conscious conspiracy, but almost its express purpose is to crush that innate trial and error, experimental, creative, entrepreneurial type of activity and replace it with a rules following uniformity in behavior. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if you look at the creation of the school system and like just the history of it, right? Like the Industrial Revolution wasn't really interested with creating entrepreneurs and free thinkers. It was interested in creating factory workers. And that's really what the public school and really just school model in general is designed to do. It's designed to create people who follow instructions, who are obedient and who can do uh, just wrote tasks throughout the day, all day, every day, and come back tomorrow and do them again without making a lot of mistakes. Oh, absolutely. And, and you don't even need to have a good or, or you know, uh, oh, there are bad people who have bad intentions behind it. You don't even need to apply a sort of a conspiratorial framework to it. Just based on the incentives at play, rational, even well-meaning people, you're in a room with 30 kids and you want them all to make it through this lesson so they can pass this test so you can be considered a good teacher whose students passed some standard tests, mm -hmm. by, by necessity, you're going to behave in ways that essentially ask them to squash their entrepreneurship. I mean, this, this might sound radical to people, and they might think that you know, well, there's ethical problems with this, but I would consider most of what's called cheating in the school system is actually Teamwork. innovation. <laughs> yeah. It's actually people finding quicker, better ways to solve a problem they've been giving. And it's a problem that they have no innate interest in. They right. have no innate passion. They're just told you're supposed to solve this. And they solve it a better, faster, cheaper way. You know? I mean, I think that is the, the reason why like Cliff Notes came about, right? It's like, right. you don't really want to read this book. We created a shortcut, <laughs> you know? So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for parents, you know, there's, there's kind of the broader realization society-wide, as you mentioned, the economy. I think this has always been valuable. I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, the school system used to be exactly what the world needed. I don't think it ever has been. Right. But I think that it's less valuable than ever. And entrepreneurial thinking is becoming increasingly valuable as the economy changes. So sort of in, in the broad macroeconomic scheme of things, I want to make the case that entrepreneurship, that trait, 
letting it live, letting it breathe, cultivating it, getting things out of the way that squash it is more important and valuable than ever for you, for your kids. Um, and then, you know, we can talk about what are some ways that you can try to let that flourish. Yeah, I, I want to clarify what I said in the beginning about looking at the economic landscape because people may not see this yet. And I don't know, you, you can interject here and agree or disagree. But the way that I see this going, it, it, we're in the age of the Internet. We're in the age of automation. You're going to find that all of the entry-level entry level jobs are becoming automated. They're not going to need human beings after yep. a while, right? Uh, and we are no longer going to be the way I see it, driving to work. Uh, the, most of the stuff that we do, especially the higher level jobs, are going to be able to be accomplished from anywhere in the world. And I think that that is going to make the availability of just jobs in general far lower. So in order for people to succeed in the marketplace of the future, they are going to have to figure out exactly what you said, how to solve problems in unique ways. You're not just going to be able to go to college, get a degree, and that's going to guarantee you a job. We're already seeing that model completely dissolve. Yeah, and, abs you know, absolutely. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And so if, and this is especially true because of all this talk about education as a right. Education should be free. Well, that's a great idea. Let's have, we already have a surplus of people with degrees who can't get jobs. Let's <laughs> give everybody a degree and completely flood the market with all of the same skilled people, right? So like this model is going to – I don't see the higher education model surviving. I think after it collapses, we're going to see a collapse of the conventional schooling model also collapse. The internet is going to swallow both of these institutions pretty much whole. Uh, it's going to take, I think, the public system a little bit longer just because – it's a daycare system, really, that's being yes. subsidized. Yes. So, you know, even if it's ineffective at its uh, quote unquote education initiative, it's still going to be valuable to some degree for a lot of people just because kids need to be taken care of while both parents work. Yeah. Um, why, why people use the system is different than why they say this, they use the system. Yes. yes, they want their kids to learn skills and succeed. And they're sort of hoping and assuming that happens. But for the most part, like you said, even if it became even more apparent than it is now that the school system is not doing that, that would not be enough for many people to stop using it because it is sort of serving that that daycare function. So that's where like remote work and parents being able to have more flexible work schedules and these other changes in the economy, those are really going to be the thing that undermines schooling. Yeah. Having absolutely. the parents be around. Well, I want to, I want to totally, I completely agree. I think you nailed it in terms of explaining where the economy is. And, and I think, the sort of, I call it the conveyor belt mindset, the mindset that says just, you know, get on the conveyor belt, whatever age you're at, you're supposed to be moved to the next station, get the grade, get the diploma, get the degree, and then you'll be spit out at the end with sort of a ticket to a job. And the, there are two problems with that. The first is, especially when it comes to higher ed, the thing that people are actually buying is not knowledge or a network or even a social experience or any of these other things. Those are benefits that they hope they get. Yeah. What they're actually buying is a signal. They're mm -hmm. buying a piece of paper that's a Permission. signal that says, yes, that, and that signal says, and it, and it still has some economic value. It says, I'm better than the average person because I made it through college. And there's some correlation there. It's not causation by any means. People with a degree on average are probably better employees, uh, you know, the 20, 22-year-old, whatever, than those without. But that's that's more about the types of people that go to college uh, or it has been tend to be better employees than the types who don't. That's actually changing now. But 
So if, if they're buying that signal, so two things are happening, making college uh, less and less valuable and making that degree less valuable. One, the value of that signal is plummeting mm-hmm. because the ability to signal your worth in other means is so much higher. If someone applies for a marketing job and says, here's my degree in marketing, compare that to someone says, here is my thing showing that I'm certified in Google AdWords. And then a third person who says, here, here's five campaigns that I ran using Google AdWords and the results that I got. Yeah. That third person is so much more about what they've signaled to you. They've proven their ability to create value that you don't even care if they have a degree. So the degree signals something, but it's a weak signal. So that so the signal value is falling. The second problem with higher ed is that it, you actually are learning some things. You're learning habits and mindsets that snuff out that entrepreneurship, that make it harder for you to make it in the real world. You come out with these habits of waiting for assignments to be given, these habits that you know uh, you can just sort of wait to be told what to do. Those mindsets are really dangerous and they're making it harder to succeed in this new software-eaten world. There's this famous phrase by a venture capitalist, Mark Andreessen, he says, software is eating the world. And I think that there's something really powerful there, as you mentioned, Robots, software, algorithms can replace monotonous rule following. Machines can follow rules better than humans. We'll put it that way. Right. So jobs that involve just following the rules and the script are being automated or done uh, much cheaper by people overseas you know, via the cloud and whatnot. So what does that mean for humans? That means entrepreneurship needs to eat the world in terms of humans. Those who succeed will be the ones who can creatively problem solve and do things that software can't do. And that's exactly the type of stuff that you cannot learn in a classroom. Yeah. And even the traditional job model, if that sticks around and maybe there's people listening who they want their kids to have that that traditional job model and they're hoping that that's still around when their kids get there. The message I would send to them is even if you instill these entrepreneurial traits into your child, I would gather that if they employed those entrepreneurial traits in their traditional job, they would get ahead much faster. Because even though I'm in a job and I'm still looking around in my job, I'm not waiting for instructions. I'm sitting, I'm looking around saying, how can I do this better than everybody around me? That's that's how an entrepreneur thinks, right? You You employ that in your job and guess what? You get noticed, you get promotions. The company says, this person's extremely valuable. You're not the one that gets laid off when layoffs come around. I can guarantee it. So it, it benefits either way. Yeah, absolutely. And some people call that a, an intrapreneur or you, know, you come up with a, an entrepreneurial employee, but the, but the concept is absolutely true. I mean, if, if someone has a basic task, you know, data entry on a spreadsheet and you come up and discover that they thought there must be a faster way, they did a Google search and found some videos that showed them how to build some advanced filter on their spreadsheet and they just went ahead and did it, and they're doing their work twice as fast as everyone else, not, not only are they more secure in that current job, they're the type of person who clearly is going to be able to grow into other roles and, and more likely than not actually create and define a role for themselves. So even if they don't want to be a, the, the one who bears the risk of starting their own company, 
there are employees in companies that are the, the best employees ever are the ones you almost can't even describe what they do. They just always get stuff done and find unique ways to add value. And they tend to be happier and more successful. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a trait that can apply whether or not you launch a business. Yeah. I can't tell you how frustrating it is to have an employee, like as a business owner, have an employee that just does what public school trained them to do, sit around and wait for their assignment and follow the instructions. I don't, number one, I don't want to have to give you an assignment. Number two, I definitely don't want to tell you how to do it, right? Like you got to look around and you have a position, you know what needs to be done. You know, the, the grand scheme of things, what we're trying to accomplish, do something about it. You know, so that's the employee I want. So I've got five employees that work for me right now. and and, And this is really, really fascinating. Many people on this conveyor belt mindset, they assume, okay, well, I want to go work for a cool company. So first I have to get the credential that says I can work there. And then I apply through the official channels to a specific job that's in, that's open and being listed right now. If they're not hiring right now, I guess I can't work there. I go try to get that entry-level job, and then I try to do what they tell me and perform. That's that's Your odds of success are so low. You're competing against hundreds of other applicants. It's it, Compare that to every one of the five people that work uh, for Praxis. Every one of them started by working for free. Mm-hmm. Now, now, compare the cost and benefits of going and offering to work for free for a company for six months versus spending four years and $50,000 to get a piece of paper that you hope will let that company work for them or you know, let, let you work for that company. So, so these guys came to me. And said, hey, I love what you're doing. I want to be a part of it. And I said, well, you know, early on, I'm bootstrapping this thing. I can't really afford to bring it. No, 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 no. I just, I want to, here's what I'm going to do. Let me take over your Facebook page and let me make sure that you have fresh posts up there every day. And then, oh, do you have MailChimp set up? Let me set up your MailChimp. And they just started doing things. And these are people that I trusted and they had sort of met me and followed me through the years or yeah. I've met them and demonstrated their value. And over the period of six months or so, in every case, they became so indispensable as we grew, I was like, you can't leave. Now I've got to pay you. Now you're on full time. Now you're partnering with me in this. And, and that's truly how all of the employees that I have working for me came to work at Praxis. They came, there wasn't an open job being advertised. They came and started creating value and made themselves indispensable. Really powerful. Yeah. I, I will tell people right now, if I ever need to get out of like being an entrepreneur for some reason, like working from home, building my businesses online, the skills that I've acquired in the actual marketplace, by the way, not going to some institution to acquire yep. them, the skills yep. that I've acquired in the marketplace, I would never drop off a resume ever. I would walk in the door. I would ask to talk to the person who is in charge of hiring. I would tell them exactly what I'm going to do for their company. And of course, I would research this ahead of time because I know that there's a lot of successful offline businesses who have no idea how to leverage the power of the internet. And I would walk in their doors and I would say, look, you don't have to pay me anything. You watch your bottom line. You let me do some stuff, right? And when that bottom line starts going through the roof, we'll talk about how much you can pay me. All right. Let me set up one landing page. Let me run one campaign and let me just show you, you know, the the ability to take that and, and, and run with it. I mean, it's so transferable. This is this is why we honestly is why we created Praxis in the first place. But the participants in our program, so they, they come in and we place them at startups and they apprentice at those startups mm-hmm. uh, for six months after they go through a three month sort of boot camp on how to really de-school your mindset and get ready to, to kick butt. And 
After the program, they get a job offer from that company. But what, even if they don't want to work there, what they've done, it's all tangible. They have, I built this website, I ran this campaign, and they've built this network too where they can go and, and like you said, say, I, we always tell them, you are your resume. You won't need a resume anymore. Google is your new resume. If people yeah. want to know who you are, they're going to Google you. And what kind of paper trail do you have out there? What kind of brand, what kind of signal are you sending to the world by what you've done. If I see, hey, Kevin Geary has done like 10 Amazon book reviews and they're really good and people really like them, that actually communicates more to me than a resume with bullet points about when you worked at Applebee's and you were on the track team, you know? <laughs> yes. I, I love I love the bullet points on their resumes where they have this like entry level job and they're really trying to dress up all their responsibilities <laughs> and all the stuff they did. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I just want to know what you can do for me. Like yes. none of that translates to what you can do for me. This is this is total like hogwash. You know, that's, that's funny you say that. So I like, this is like a date. So, so I actually posted, I tried this one time, didn't end up working. I posted to indeed.com a job opening and I was looking for somebody like relatively mid to senior level. And I got about a hundred or so applicants. And from those applications that came in, I think two, I think only two out of about, it was probably more like 90, maybe two out of 90, anywhere in their application or cover letter said anything about praxis about my company. It was all me, 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 me. Here's why I'm good. Here's why I'm smart. Here's what I can do. But it was never for you. And it was never, here's why I love your company and what made me interested in it and why I could do X, Y, and Z. Now imagine if you went on a date with someone for the first time and you said, okay, I'm going to tell you the five reasons I am highly dateable and you should go on a second date with me. Yeah. <laughs> Contrast that to, wow, let me tell you why I was so interested in you. Let me tell you what I like about you. And, and business people, I mean, we're passionate about our companies. And if we don't see that you have done your homework and you're actually interested in our company, we don't care how many bullet points you have on your resume. Like, do some research and tell me, what about me? What are you going to do for me? What do you love about my company, my idea? Really simple tip that will help you get uh, get an interview much better than just listing your, your accolades. Yeah, because you know what? And and two, if you're going to go in and, and uh, negotiate pay, for example, like the main thing the company wants to know is how you are going to add value, right? It's yep. not how are you going to fill a position. It's how are you going to add value? The In order for me to hire somebody, you have to be worth more than I'm paying you, right? Yes. Like I need to make a profit on you. How am I going to do that? That's the main thing. Like you got to go into the, the, the negotiation with to be able to communicate that. So again, going back to education, not preparing uh, students for this world. It's also, I think, uh, really hurting them in terms of what we just talked about communication. You know, that's one thing I see is like, they, they're not being shown how to properly communicate. They don't do enough public speaking. They don't do enough face-to-face -face interaction. Did you ever uh, get into a negotiation scenario? In, I assume you went to public school. Did you go to public school? No, actually, I was homeschooled. Homeschooled. Oh, okay. Homeschooled this is perfect. All the way through. I had one year that I went – my sophomore year, I went to a private school and I, did, I didn't like it all that much. So then I did community college for my last two years of high school. Okay. So this is perfect because you got homeschooled. I – got public schooled. I'll just tell you, in public school, not once ever did they teach you how to negotiate. Did they have you in a mock negotiation or anything like that? How do I go into the marketplace not knowing how to negotiate, not knowing what people want from me? 
right? And how to give them what they want. So like right there, we see a, a massive gap. And the question, I guess, is if somebody has a, a child in public school right now, what is your message to them about actually preparing their children? Are you a proponent of them looking at ways to get their child out of the system? Are you a proponent of looking at ways to work within the system? What are you a proponent of? Get them out. I mean, truly, I, if you can, and I think you're a lot more able to than you think you are if you get really creative and you make it a priority, get them out. I mean, really, the, the, if you know that this system, and you can do any amount of research on this, and I, I, the more you dig into it and the way that children learn, um, you know, read books like Peter Gray's, uh, for, you know, Free to Learn, re, you know, look at Penelope Trunk. Look, I mean, there's so much out there, John Taylor Gatto, John Holt. The more you start to discover, you'll realize this isn't very effective. This isn't helping your kids. They don't enjoy it most of the time. Just get them out. Exiting a bad situation, exiting something that's boring and soul-sucking, people often look at that and call it lack of commitment or loyalty. I think it's one of the most courageous and difficult things for humans to do. I mean, this is why a lot of people never leave jobs that they hate because yeah. it's really hard. And if you know your kid doesn't like it and you don't like it, get them out. That would be my first First and foremost, um, if you can't for some reason, um, you know, look for ways to allow them maximum freedom, maximum free time. Um, you know, try not to turn into a police officer just trying to enforce the teachers, you know, homework rules or whatever. Look for any ways you can get them out mentally or physically as much as possible. But I just say get them out altogether, and then the de-schooling process can, can begin. Yeah, let's so let's talk about that because getting. We, we've already recognized that if, if they're in the school model, that's really what is destroying that entrepreneurial spirit that they were born with. And you, uh, you, you said that everybody's born with this to a different degree, right? But it's uh -huh. there, this ability yes. to look around and really this desire to look around and problem solve and innovate. Uh, but getting them out of the school system doesn't really nurture – that side of them, right? It stops the destruction yeah, from happening. Yeah. How do we start to nurture that side of them? Yeah. So, and this is really important because even a lot of, uh, homeschoolers, um, you know, I grew up homeschooled and, and in practice, it was kind of close to unschooling because my mom struggled to be organized, but she always felt guilty about that. Like she intended to follow the path of many homeschoolers, which is, Oh, we'll pull you out of school because it's not rigid and structured enough or, mm. or because they just aren't teaching the right subjects. They should be teaching Latin instead of, you know, um, and so we just need to add more rigor, more structure. And I don't think that's the answer. So just getting your kids out of school, it also takes a change in the way you parent and the way you view education and learning. And I would say the biggest thing for most was before we start thinking about sort of positive things we can do. And I only think there are a few positive things you can do to help entrepreneurship grow and encourage it. For the most part, it's keeping yourself from doing negative things. First, do no harm. I think most of our instincts as parents, as educators, or people who want our children to learn are to do things that make it hard on our kids. So I always try to ask myself, in what ways am I getting in the way of letting these entrepreneurial traits evolve? And some of those things are... Um, the, the the right solution 
and, and controlling yourself. When you see your kid struggling with something, uh, a video game, or they're trying to open up a package or whatever it might be, and you see them repeatedly doing it the wrong way, it's so tempting to come and say, no, here's the right way. Let me just show you the right way. And again, I'm not saying that that's like evil or you're going to destroy your child forever, but letting yourself just stay back and let them experiment with it and let them play around. Now, if they come to you and ask and say, hey, would you help me with this? I'm not going to say, no, figure it out yourself. I'm happy to help <laughs> because I think them recognizing that's a really valuable trait too. just being willing and humble enough and not being afraid to ask people for help. Yeah. So if they ask me to help, I'm going to help them. Absolutely. But if they haven't, you, you know that you've experienced this. All parents have. You go and try to help your kid and they push you away. They don't want to be helped, even though they're doing it wrong. Try to resist helping them. Try to resist telling them what the right solution is. Um, let them figure out the solution that works for them. And sometimes this means watching them struggle and stomp their feet and get angry because they can't figure it out. Like, that's okay. That's them trying to go through it. That frustration is okay because what that means is when they do solve it, they will have so much pride and confidence and they'll understand, hey, I'm able to solve problems. They'll learn so many of those lessons that we think we can teach them by like reading them parables or telling them directly. If you're patient and persistent, you will succeed. But yet we, we don't let them persist because we bail in to, you know, come bail them out, try to save them, try to give them the right answer. So sort of back off, let them experiment, let them play. Um, I think another big one, huge one is the tyranny of expectations. So I think one thing that I had a tremendous advantage when I look back at my childhood, and I don't think this was conscious on my mom's part necessarily, but she had basically no expectations for us. Now, now not in a demeaning way, because she thought that her children were stupid or incapable. Um, she expected us to do our household chores. That was a big thing. And it's sort of like work ethic. You can't be lazy. We all had to help out around the house. Um, but she never once said, okay, you need to be thinking about college. When are you going to go to college? What kind of job do you want? Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you think you, do you think you want to be an accountant like your dad was? Do you think you want to be? Never. We never had those conversations. As long as she felt like I was acting morally and I wasn't lazy and I was keeping up on my chores, if I was doing baseball, great. She hoped I'd do well in baseball. She didn't try to say, hey, have you thought about trying out for the next team? If I switched and was doing music, great. You know, you want to get a guitar? I'll, I'll pay for you to get one. Do you want to take lessons? No? Okay. You know, um, she never had that. I never had any pressure. I just sort of picked a school to, to go to for college. It was really crappy and it was a waste of money. And I didn't, <laughs> looking back, it's like, you know, that, that, that was the source of my original frustration and, and eventual creation of Praxis. But my mom was never, I never felt sort of tyrannized or oppressed by her expectations. And that is something I run into with so many of the young people that I talk to that come through Praxis. First and foremost, we have to help them break free of the shackles of their parents' expectations because mm -hmm. they can't do anything. They can't discover, they can't innovate. If they know in the back of their mind, mom and dad are going to be ashamed of me if I don't do this. And often those expectations come from a, from a caring place. They come from a place of, I see the potential in my kid that they don't even see in themselves. And I know they could take their love of Minecraft YouTube videos and, you know, start, start a YouTube channel, do something with it, you know, get it on a career path, like turn that into a career. And you try to help them, but it makes them feel this pressure, this expectation. And that really shuts down the playful experimentation required for entrepreneurial, uh, you know, getting that entrepreneurship cultivated. Yeah, I, I want to go back to what you said about letting them struggle, uh, which is very important. But the other thing I wanted, the other point I wanted to make was that 
a lot of times there's there's kind of two angles to this. Number one, people will figure out how to use something differently than the norm and it becomes very valuable, right? So like even though they're using it in a way where you're like, that's not what that's for. That's not what that's for. They're doing it wrong. Let me go. Let me go fix this. Let me go straighten this out. I'm going to show them exactly how to use this thing. You got to stop that specifically because they could find a brand new way to put this thing to use, right? That's that's valuable to them or to other people or whatever. So by you going in and saying, that's not how this works. Let me show you how it works. You are stopping that process from happening, right? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And a lot and I use this the slide example at parks. Like there's there's a reason. There's a reason that almost every kid wants to climb up the slide. Now all the parents are like, that's not what that's for. The slide's for going down. You're not allowed to climb up the slide. And then they say, you know, parents, of course, oh, there's a safety hazard and we gotta keep the kids safe. Of course, the kids, if you just watch them and stand back, they all figure it out. They all, you know, keep each other safe for the most part. Um, usually the, the person who's not keeping other people safe is the person who's constantly corralled by their parents and given instructions so they can't figure it out on their own. Like, oh, if I go down when they're standing there, you know, it's going to be bad. Um, but that's a, a prime example of like, I think it's human nature for us to really analyze different things and say, what are the myriad of ways that, that this could be used? And too much instruction and too much intervention takes that away and people kids start to look at objects saying hmm i wonder what i wonder how that's supposed to be used like i better go ask somebody before i touch that thing you know you know and sometimes it goes even farther we love to break things this is how humans kind of understand the world and reverse engineer it i I just saw a great post um, by taylor pearson he's the author of a book called the end of jobs it's a great book talks about this kind of future that you and I are discussing where entrepreneurship is so valued. And he said, you know, once upon a time, accuracy was really valued in the marketplace. If you, if you pick the wrong location for a giant $10 million factory, that was a big deal. Or if you pick the wrong, you know, it's process to implement for whatever you're building in the world of software, accuracy is far less important than speed. So just being able to play around, there's the famous, uh, I think it's Facebook, um, move fast and break things um, yeah. or, uh, you know, screw it, ship it. Like coders are big on this. You just ship the beta, you get it going, you test it. And even you hope that people try to break it. And this is how we kind of reverse engineer. So you get a new video game. What do you do? The first thing you do is you try to figure out where are the boundaries? What happens if I jump off the edge? Can I, can I kill myself by going into the lava? What happens to my character if I do that? Or your kids get a new toy. They want to see, they want to test its limits. They want to try to break it. And it's really tempting as adults to like, no, that's not how you're supposed to use it. You're going to break it. Now, I'm not advocating let them break your stuff. I'm not going to let my kids come in here and, you know, <laughs> right. smash my, my car or my, you know, whatever, my microphone here. But letting them with their own things, you know, it's a Lego set that they get or a toy or a video game. That's them exploring and poking and pushing the boundaries. And that's how they kind of reverse engineer. Okay, this is how you break it. These are the rules. And this is where they no longer apply. You know, I found a flaw. I found a bug. How can I exploit that? And that kind of like quickly trying things, trying to break things, trying to mess around with them. That is messy and ugly to us as, uh, you know, sort of people who supposedly know how things work and certainly to central planners who want a world to look as they imagine it. But that messiness and trial and error and that pushing and breaking things, 
it's so wonderful. And if your kids learn to associate breaking things with fear and terror, they will have such a hard time being an entrepreneur. If they associate breaking things with learning and understanding, then they won't take it so personally. And then they'll ship their first product or their first piece of software that they coded. And everyone will say, it's broken. This doesn't work. This is buggy. And they won't curl up into a ball and cry and say, I failed. They'll say, oh, good. This is good feedback. Give me more. Give me more. Yeah, and that's the mindset that's necessary. That's so critical because what does the schooling model do? The schooling model says failing is bad. Failing is wrong. Here's the red X's all over your paper. This is terrible. This is a complete failure. We're going to give you this low grade. You know, we'll put you in remedial classes. Like, what are you talking about? Like in the marketplace, failing is extremely valuable. That's how you get the best feedback. That's how you often move forward to make an even better thing or do even better in whatever job or position that you are in. But school programs that into people and they get scared and they're like, I can't make any mistakes. I can't make any, I don't, I just want to, I just want to do perfect on this. I want to get my A plus, you know, I don't want to get any red X's on my sheet. And if you're in the marketplace, you've got to shoot for those red X's. Like you said, with software. So there's there's two different uh, ways you could go about this, right? You could say, I'm going to slap something together. I'm going to put it out in the marketplace and I'm going to let my users break it. And I'm going to figure out based on their uh, breaking it and based on their feedback, I'm going to figure out how to build the best software that they need. Or you can use the school model, which is like, all right, we can't screw this up. We can't screw it. We got to do months of planning. We have to do months of coding and development, months of testing. We're going to spend countless dollars on this thing to make sure it's an A plus when we release it. They do that. They release it and the users go, this isn't what we wanted. This isn't work for us. Right. And so it's still a failure, but it's that mindset of that the school has a man of we, we can't fail. We, we just we got to do this right. We got to do this perfect. That, it, that does not work in the marketplace. Yeah, I've got I've got to get my certification first and become an expert and learn the way that it's done and then build it and make sure it's perfect and get it certified and tested and then release it to the public and everyone will love it. And and this kind of there, there's a phrase that I really like. It's uh, and I can't remember what author it comes from, but it's don't hold your ideas precious. And that's really hard, especially in school where you've got the one writing assignment and you've got to make it really good and really right. And then you turn it in and you either get a good grade or you don't. Contrast that to a challenge that we give all of our participants to blog every day for 30 days and make yourself come up with something. And it's so hard to get over yourself. Well, I can't submit this out there. What if somebody sees it or worse? What if (laughs) nobody sees it and I get, I go unnoticed or what if, what if I change my mind later? What if it's, it's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be suck. Uh, You know, if you're Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn said, if your first version doesn't suck, you launch too late, you know, like get it out there and get used to, Hey, it's okay. I can, you know, I can each time I learn and I can sort of grow from that. And I can, I don't feel like I'm a failure just because some activity that I tried failed. Separating yourself from the the experiments, the activities, the things that you build sort of emotionally um, is a really big trait. And that's hard. And, and Kevin, I got to be totally the first to say with my own kids. So I have an 11 year old, a six year old and a four year old. I am really bad at this. I really struggle with all these things. These things that I'm, I'm sort of sharing is, you know, this can help, this can help. Every day I have to try to remind myself of this because I am, I am just like anybody else. I worry, I stress about my kids. I immediately think, 
oh, they're interested in this. Maybe they can careerify that. How can I help them? Because I like entrepreneurship. I'm always trying to make the connections for them. Mm. Oh, you're good at this. Oh, you're a good artist. You know, people like that. Maybe you could sell that and try yeah, to like, yeah. And then they don't want to because now it's my idea. Now it sounds like a homework assignment. And even <laughs> even if it might take them longer to see the connection, I've got to let them see it on their own. They've got to experience that eureka moment. Otherwise, they won't have the passion to pursue it. And that can be really hard. Yeah. Oh, and there's the flip side of it, too, where parents don't aren't entrepreneurial, right? They're not entrepreneurial. So they look at things that their kids are doing and they go, God, that is worthless. That's a worthless activity. <laughs> We've got to stop this. Like my kid is playing Minecraft all day. This is such a worthless activity. Look, you are out of touch with the marketplace. You have no idea the the skills that they're gaining yeah. through whatever they're doing could be extremely valuable. Like I just found out that there is a a marketplace online where people pay to watch other people play video games. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then there's of course the guy who had the foresight or girl, I don't know, had the foresight to create this marketplace in the first place. Like knowing that, you know what? I think a lot of people will pay to watch people play video games. I'm going to make a marketplace for that. And there's people making hundreds of thousands of dollars getting just filming themselves playing video games oh. and the parents of those kids probably were like this kid is lost he plays <laughs> video games all day right you have no idea what is going to be able to become a marketable idea for myself i was on the computer all the time when i was a teenager thankfully my parents didn't kick me off because those are the skills. I was building websites when I was 12 and 13. Those yes. are the skills that I use today to make my businesses successful. If they had kicked me off of that, what would I have done, right? I would I would have not acquired these skills or I would be way uh, farther behind than I am now. And we have to be careful to not go in the other direction too and say, yeah, you're right. Digital skills are so important. I've got to make sure my kid learns to code because the lesson is not – oh, this specific skill was undervalued, now it's valued, therefore yeah. we should all do this. Right. In 10 years, maybe nobody will code. Maybe you can just talk to a, you know, a, a Siri and she'll build the code for you. Like, <laughs> right. we, know, we don't know the careers of today didn't exist 10 years ago and what our kids will be doing in five or 10 years probably don't exist yet. So just letting, I mean, the, the phenomenon of YouTubers with kids, my son at, at age 11, he probably doesn't know the name of any famous actor besides maybe like Arnold Schwarzenegger or somebody who's like become a cultural meme. He knows all these YouTubers. They're like teenage kids who start making YouTube videos where they review video games. And some of these are making, truly making millions of dollars a yeah. year. And, and that's a form of celebrity that none of us saw coming. So if we had a kid that said, I want to have millions of fans and I want to be invited to big events and galas and I want to be, you know, we would have said, well, I guess you're going to have to try to become an actor or a singer or yeah. whatever. Uh, nobody saw this coming. These teenage kids drinking Mountain Dew and, and, you know, on their YouTube, making YouTube video talking about a video game. They're more famous. They actually have action figures at Walmart of YouTubers. <laughs> you can buy these. Little, it's craziness. Like, yeah, it's amazing. It's truly amazing. So we can't see it coming, which is why I think it's really important to not try to careerify mm. our kids interest for them. And, and another, another thing I want to throw in there too, is the pace. So we get all excited, the pace of technological change, the ability to get started as an entrepreneur younger than ever. It's amazing. The tools you have, that's all true. And we don't want our kids to be afraid of that, but don't worry 
that your kid is falling behind. Don't try to compare them to others like, oh, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out at 19 and started Facebook. Oh, my kid is behind. They're 20 and they haven't built a company yet or whatever. The, the, I actually was just looking at a statistic. The majority of startups, the average age of the founder is like 40 or 42 or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I took 10 years. So I had 19. My brother and I tried to start this service company. We ran it for about six months. It didn't really work. So then I went and worked like I, I had all kinds of different jobs. And I always just kind of followed whatever was interesting to me. My number one rule was just don't do things I hate and don't be bored, uh, which is surprisingly hard to make yourself stick to that. And I just kind of followed a lot of different jobs, different career trajectory. And it wasn't till and I had had the idea for Praxis when I was in college. Twelve years later, I eventually launched it. It was kind of just in the back of my mind that whole time. I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur consciously. I was always, you know, kind of interested in a lot of stuff and I had some of those traits, but I didn't think of that. I wasn't always thinking I need to start a business, but it eventually happened. And the path was one that's completely unpredictable. And I think just not stressing about the timetable your kids are on is really important too. Like they'll, they'll find it. I always say, as long as they're not doing things they hate, they're moving in right, roughly right, the right direction. It's too hard to like pick a passion, pick a career, and and plot a path to it. Because normally, by the time you get there, you realize you didn't like it anyway. Kids who are like, I, my life dream was to be a lawyer. By the time they become one, they're depressed and they're stuck as lawyers, and they didn't want it. You know, they've, yeah. <laughs> they've changed. Which you so know just, what? That's just a, don't do things you hate. You know? Yeah, that's a great example actually. Because there was a time where I wanted to be a lawyer because. And this was – I'll give a, a, a head nod to the school that I went to, but they we had a class where we did mock trials, right? And I loved the investigative process of having to either prosecute somebody or defend somebody, right? Like the details that you have to look at, the problem solving, getting up and convincing the jury, like that was so fun to me. And I was like, you know what? What would it take? To be a lawyer because this might actually be fun. And then you look and you're like, holy shit. It takes all of this schooling that I don't really want to do that really isn't really that involved with being a good lawyer. And it, it costs tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of yeah, dollars. Quarter million dollars usually. Yeah, because know? what people don't also realize is let's say the tuition is $150,000, $200,000. You're out of the marketplace for four to eight years, right? How much money could you have made had you have been in the marketplace? So it's not just what you're spending on the edu- the quote unquote education, it's all the money you didn't make while you were doing that. So you're, it's a massive amount of, of money lost. Uh, and really for what? Because like you said, it's really the, the schooling process, the amount of debt that they have, all of the regulation. By the time you get through all that, you're like, man, this really sucks. Like I definitely don't want to be a lawyer ever again anymore. But in law school is especially scary in that way because by the time you graduate, the amount of debt you have, the only way to be able to afford to pay it off is to get a law job. And you end up doing merger and acquisition paper. I mean, truly, if I had like a dollar for every lawyer that told me they wish they hadn't become a lawyer yeah. or that, that word other people off. So that, you know, that's one with a lot of path dependency once you get in it. So, so the, the less you can shackle yourself to sort of what your past self wanted. I mean, I, I hate to admit this because I'm so anti-politics now. At one point, I wanted to be a politician. 
And I still get people who are like, oh, when are you going to run for office? Now, according to that past self, I am a failure. My previous what I wanted to be, I have failed at that. Yeah. Now, I had to give myself the freedom to evolve out of that, even if people from my past don't understand it and they still see me as a failure because I never became that thing. Uh, that's fine. I think our, we need to give our kids that same freedom too. letting them quit takes courage for them. And it can be hard for us. Oh, but you were getting so good at music. You really want to quit now? Really letting them now again, if they're doing that because they have some unnatural insecurity or, we, you know, the environment they're in is just making it not fun. It's not really the thing itself. Maybe it's the teacher, you know, trying to help them find solutions. But if they want to quit, if they want to become a different version of themselves, maybe for 10 years, you know, Sally wanted to be a vet. And then all of a sudden, Sally completely changes her mind and wants to be a graphic designer. We can't try to shackle our kids to their past self or to things that we thought they would be. I think giving them that freedom to quit when things are not resonating with them is scary for us, but it's really important in this discovery process. Yeah, absolutely. So what I would say to to parents, uh, and I'll see if you agree with this, is if you allow children to pursue their interests and you make sure that their entrepreneurial spirit, their problem-solving spirit, their innovation spirit is not destructed at some point in the process or the entire way. When you combine interests with entrepreneurial spirit, you are always going to be able to create value in the marketplace. So this fear that parents have of they're going to be in my basement when they're 38 years old, they're not going to be able to care for themselves or they're going to be working at McDonald's if we don't make sure that they follow the path. You know, Stay in your lane, Jimmy. We're going to get that degree. We're going to get that job so you can get out of the basement. Um, if you let them pursue their interests and make sure that their entrepreneurial fire is not put out, those two things combined, they are going to be able to find a way to be valuable in the marketplace. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, I always say there's there's two things that matter in the marketplace for your success. The ability to create value for others and the ability to prove that to others. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're really good at creating value, but nobody knows it. You're going to have a hard time capitalizing on it. So you need to be able to do both of those. So you've got to be able to create real value and you've got to be able to show that to people to make them say, oh, I can see how you can do this to take a chance. You know, you could call one uh, product development and one sales if you want to, you know, being the kind of person who can do valuable things and being the kind of person who knows how to show that and prove it and sort of sell it to others. Those traits do not require classrooms and specific books and all these other things, you may or may not decide the value you want to create is a specific skill that requires specific training. Those may or may not be a part of it. But at the end of the day, that's all it is. So when you when you define it that way and you start to look around, there are almost infinite numbers of ways you can create value for people. And when you're young, you have this amazing competitive advantage that's called nothing better to do. <laughs> Your opportunity cost is really low. For you to spend a couple hours of your time booking travel for somebody, you're, all you're giving up is a couple hours that you could be hanging out with your buddies or something. There's not that many other things. If some busy CEO books his own travel and he gives up a few hours of his time to do it, his opportunity cost is really high. He could have been closing a $10,000 client with that few hours. So your ability to create value, even if that CEO is better than you at booking his own travel, 
it costs him more to do it because he has a higher opportunity cost. You don't as a young person. So right. even if you're not the best at anything, you know, this is why people hire you to mow their lawns. Most people are better at mowing their lawns than, than a 10 year old, but they'll still hire the 10 year old because their time is more valuable. So that's a huge advantage young people have that they don't realize that the fact that their opportunity cost is so low, it lets them, you know, bid low, offer to work for free or cheap as a way to learn and to create value for people who have very expensive time. Absolutely. And this is something that people learn as they get more successful and more successful. It's something that I learned, for instance, 10 years ago, you know, what I have, what I've paid somebody 80 bucks to come install a ceiling fan or something. (laughs) Absolutely not. I would have been up on that ladder. I've been reading instructions, trying to figure this out and save my $80. The more successful you become, you start making a lot of money. You're like, you know what? Installing that fan is going to, in time, is going to cost me way more than $80. Like, (laughs) I should just pay somebody $80. They can come install the fan while I continue to do what I do, right? Um, Absolutely. So people see this as, as it goes. And so there's always somebody that can install a fan for someone because there's always somebody that. That time is more valuable to them. They need to hire somebody to, to make it happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, the opportunities are just everywhere uh, when you start to see it that way. So I, I want to I encourage parents. I think often when you feel, when you think about software is eating all the jobs and the economy is changing, people see that and they get scared. Yeah. There is nothing scared. This is opportunity. This is amazing. Yes. This is allowing us, I mean, think about it. Would we be in a better world today if every bit of dirt that had to be moved had to be moved with a shovel, if backhoes had never been invented and all these things. No. Did those destroy jobs? Yeah. But they created so much wealth. Now we can do things that are more interesting, more creative. So this is a huge opportunity, and it's especially an opportunity for people who see it coming and are sort of the first movers. This is a wonderful thing for humans. Never before has it been easier to sort of monetize your interests, to do interesting, creative things, to to not just work for a company, but to be your own company, whether you get paid by this place or that place or this person as a freelancer or you start your own business. You are me, Inc. Whether you like it or not, you have a brand, you've got, you've got, you're sort of the one who's in charge of this. No institution's going to give it to you. That's an opportunity to really explore and do what you love. So as parents, primarily, I think we can kind of get out of the way, let our kids discover and really, um, you know, uh, put them in situations that are resource rich and opportunity rich but let them be the ones who sort of play around and experiment and see those connections. So let's talk about praxis. So let's say you have a a child who's been unschooled, right? Their entrepreneurial spirit is alive. And I know this isn't necessarily your target market. I'm just, we're just talking here. Oh, we love those types. (laughs) All right. So they come in. Do, Do we still need a program like praxis? Tell me what praxis does uh, for that person, and what does practice praxis do for somebody coming from the conventional model? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not everybody needs praxis. Uh, if you know for a fact, and you're in a very specialized thing, you know that you want to be an engineer, and you go learn engineering skills. Um, you know, there there are other methods that are better than praxis to become an engineer. For example, yeah, we're really for those kind of generalists. So we tend to be people who are entrepreneurial and maybe they're kind of like sales, marketing interest, sort of non-technical people who are interested in entrepreneurship and startups and kind of being in charge of their own life and career. So 
the program is a is a nine month program. Uh, if you go to the website today, it might still say twelve month. We are just transitioning the model a little bit, but it's a nine month program. You have a three month boot camp that's all done remotely, where it's really intensive, and you're learning to kind of you build your own website as a way to sort of build your brand and document your projects and what you do. Um, learn some basic digital skills, um, and you're you're kind of de-screwing your mindset and doing a lot of self-discovery and learning sort of what are your entrepreneurial traits, what what can you do to sort of cultivate those, how to be really successful in a work environment, how to take advantage of opportunities, and then for the next six months, we place you with a startup where you are apprenticing, you get paid, you're, it's a paid apprenticeship. Um, for six months, while you're continuing weekly coaching sessions with Praxis Advisors, you're continuing self-directed projects and uh, modules in different areas, whether it's some of them are even like liberal arts, if you want to learn economics or history, you know, we have sort of modules that let you kind of self-guided go through that, produce some some uh, projects and tangible outcomes. But you're really going through this apprenticeship experience and learning on the job. And at the end of the program, you get a job offer uh, from this startup, or if you want to go somewhere else, we have all sorts of companies in our network. We can help you with them. You really can write your ticket at that point. So our, who are we targeting? It's kind of like 17 to 27 year olds. We have, we have a lot of homeschoolers that do this right out of high school and they do this instead of college. Um, they get hired. Our average salary for grads is 50,000 a year. Uh, these are people that often, most of the time don't have degrees. We have college opt-outs, we call them, people who are, you know, they're in college for a few years and they're bored and they're unhappy and they want to take a break or maybe never go back and they do praxis um, and they don't have to go back because they end up getting a, a job that they love. And then we have college grads sometimes. You know, 82% of graduates don't have a job lined up after graduation. 62% mm -hmm. of college grads are either unemployed or working in a job that doesn't require a degree. So these people realize this degree didn't really get me anywhere. What can I do? And this is a foot in the door at a cool company getting this experience that you just can't get in a classroom. I mean, you got to learn it by doing it. You know, working in sales and marketing at a startup, um, you just can't trade that. You can't simulate that. So that's the nature of the program. That's really what it's all about. For, for your listeners, I would say this. I would encourage it because I'm guessing most of them are parents whose children are younger. Mm -hmm. Go to thefutureofschool.com. Okay. There's a free ebook there. Um, and that is kind of the philosophy behind Praxis. The philosophy of like, what is education ideally? What does it look like in this sort of new entrepreneurial world? Go download the free ebook at thefutureofschool.com. Check that out. Um, you know, if you're interested in learning more, there's, there's, you know, links to the Praxis program in there. If you do know young people who are at that age, if you have kids who are more like 14 to 18, we actually have an online course, a teen entrepreneurship course. And again, this is not about teaching them entrepreneurship. It's really about chiseling away the things that kind of get in the way and helping them see that. So, um, you can find all that stuff, but go to the future and check out the ebook. Awesome. I, I was going to comment on the apprenticeship that you talked about because I, I feel like this is one of the biggest tragedies was our transition from the apprenticeship model of learning a skill to the permission schooling based models. It's so weird. I, I don't know, I don't know why. why. Yeah. Why did that happen? Because like the apprenticeship model is, I mean, by all accounts and objective measures, the best model. <laughs> for for saying, I have an interest. You already do this thing. You're already successful at this thing in the marketplace. Let me come in and you just shadow me. Teach me what you know. And we go from there. Like, 
now we have to pay an institution hundreds of thousands of dollars and get a little certificate. And then yeah. when we get out of that institution, we're six, six, uh, eight, ten years behind the marketplace. Oh, we have amazing. to relearn <laughs> what we weren't taught. There, there's a lot of distortions that have brought it about. You know, I mean, just the subsidization of education, a lot of work rules and labor laws that have that have um, made people get degrees as a way to to keep to prop up wages and keep out you know competition. So a lot of things have evolved over the years, and then just the cultural narrative around college has become so strong. It's just like anybody, everyone just goes automatically. It's just like prestige. To, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like yeah, I mean, can you imagine if we were like, hey. Every every young person should buy a go into debt to buy a really nice pickup truck because no matter what you'll just it'll just help you you yeah, know like right right, right. <laughs> really it's going to apply to everyone in all situations but but that's breaking down it's really breaking down it's hit this point where employers I mean all the businesses we work with they love Praxis because they're like look I need good talent I don't care what the economy is doing I'm always hiring if I can find good people and I'm sorting through hundreds of applicants they all have degrees and they all suck yeah <laughs> you know I need a better way so. Um, yeah, the apprenticeship model, it's huge. And it's, it's kind of survived for sort of like the trades for things that are kind of more um, physical or craftsy in nature, maybe uh, welding and things like that. But really what we're offering is apprenticeships at startups and for people who aren't necessarily coders. If you're a coder, you can go to a coding school in six weeks and get hired at a startup. But if you're not that person, if you're like me and you're like, well, I'm good with people, I'm good with words, but I'm a generalist. Sales, marketing, operations, there are so many opportunities at these fast-growing companies that are just doing interesting things and working with interesting people. These are not places where you're in a cubicle farm with 100 other interns. You're, you're doing real work. So it is, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, awesome. So I'll throw out one more like political thing before we go because it just popped into my mind. But having people consider the ramifications of some policies they may support, such as the minimum wage – uh, so in terms of like apprenticeship, there's if, – if a company – a company would be incentivized if they had, for example, a an amazing computer programmer, right? But they are – they know eventually they're going to need two computer programmers. So rather than go out and hire some computer programmer to this great cost because this person has a degree and they have a lot of debt and you know they're saying, oh, this is what I'm worth, like bringing – somebody on board who wants to learn how to be a computer programmer and pairing them with this you know, awesome programmer we already have and using the apprenticeship model to bring somebody up within the company. So there's other benefits to this. Like if you just bring in an outsider, they don't understand the company culture, right? They have to be kind of oriented in, in that direction versus you bring somebody up within the company. They completely understand the culture, the mission, all of that stuff. It's not – we're not able to do that at this point because no. I can't bring you on at $15 an hour when you don't know what you're doing. Like no. I would love to bring you on, Mr. 16-year-old, Mr. 15-year-old, Mr. 14-year-old. Yeah. I'd love to bring you – by the way, can't even employ 14-year-olds and 13-year-olds, right? It's illegal for right. people to work for free. Yep. It's so no, we can't, you know, I would love to pay you $3 an hour, $4 an hour while you sit with this programmer and learn how to do it, but we can't yeah. do that. That's illegal. So, We're not allowed. The good intentions of people who advocate things like, uh, I mean, even child labor laws, as you mentioned, or minimum wage laws or, you know, work requirement laws or laws that require you to have a certification or a, or a degree. Those good intentions are, are fine. But in reality, I, this is really true. If I was a sinister, horrible, evil person and I wanted to think of the best way to keep young people and poor people, keep them down, keep them dependent and keep them struggling. 
I would pass really high minimum wage laws. I would pass laws making it illegal for young and unskilled people to work. I would pass all these kind of things. That's exactly it cuts off those bottom rungs of the ladder. When you're 13 or 15 and you're interested in coding, you're not worth 10, 12, 15 dollars an hour for somebody to take a risk on. But if you could come in and say, let me just shadow you for free and see what I can do. Those kind of opportunities are so, so valuable. So we're kind of trying to break into that. You know, our, our apprenticeships are paid, um, but we, we kind of tell our business partners, you're basically paying intern level costs for entry level talent. We're giving you really quality above average people. They're, they're highly vetted. I mean, the practice program is very competitive. Only yeah. about 15% of applicants get in. Um, but these are really quality people at a low cost that you can't get with the, the people who are out there, you know, saying I have a degree, therefore I automatically need a, you know, whatever amount of money. So, but yeah, that, that model is huge. And those kind of laws and regulations, they really do hurt the ability of young people to do everything from open up lemonade stands to go apprentice somewhere. Awesome. So discoverpraxis.com is the website, right? You got it. And you have a podcast called the Isaac Morehouse podcast. Yeah, it's very creatively named. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love your podcast and uh, I've recommended it to a whole bunch of people. So uh, I'm going to make sure that everybody here listening, uh, if you like what you heard today, you're going to get a lot more uh, of that and more great stuff that you talk about all the time uh, on the Isaac Morehouse podcast. Uh, anywhere else people can find you or, or need to go? No, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm always, uh, always happy to, to chat. And uh, if you want the free ebook, just go to thefutureofschool.com. Yes, futureofschool.com. And for everybody listening in the show notes, we'll have links to all of this. So if you are driving or whatever, don't be typing. Don't be trying to write this stuff down. <laughs> just go to the show notes later, click on the links and it's all good. All right, Isaac Morehouse, thank you so much for being on the show. Kevin, you bet. This was a blast.